Well, speaking of relationship, uh, we are, as a church also, we believe that Sound City Bible Church is not the only uh, game in town. Amen? Uh, We believe that Sound City exists not for Sound City, but exists to glorify God and to share God's love with people. And as such, we really value partnerships and friendships and relationships. And uh, I'm really excited today as we continue in our sermon series on the Gospel of John to get to hand off the pulpit today to my new friend, Rabbi Matt. Matt and I, uh, we met, I guess, maybe not quite a year ago. Uh, We got connected up because of Patty right there, uh, her insistence. And I was going to say badgering, but insistence is so much more gracious sounding, right? But uh, she's like, I really think you would enjoy Rabbi Matt. Matt, he's a good guy. I'm like, I don't know. He, I, I saw his Facebook. He's wearing a Yankees hat. I don't know. I don't know if we can do that. And, uh, but the good news is that Jesus died to divide the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile and between Mariners and Yankees fans. So it's, the gospel is really powerful. And so I'm really excited. He's from New York. He gets a pass, okay? So I'm really excited to welcome Rabbi Matt to come and teach from God's word, to teach us about Jesus today. Uh, before he comes, I'm going to invite Gibson to come up, and he is going to do our scripture reading today. If you have your Bibles, I'll invite you to open to John chapter 5. We'll read this passage together, and then we'll uh, dive into God's word together this morning. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. and these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man who was there had been an invalid for thirty-eight years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now, th- now that day was the Sabbath. So the, Jew- so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered to them, The man who healed me, the man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, and nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Hey, good morning. Good to see you guys. Glad to be here. Um, my name is Matt Rosenberg. I'm the rabbi of Restoration, which is, meets in uh, North Seattle. And I'm really excited to be here with you guys and to share. And uh, I felt like I had to dress up a little bit more than I usually do just because of Aaron's mustache. So <laughs> I feel like I had to. It's so impressive. And uh, you guys realize you have to be very secure in your masculinity to uh, have a mustache like that. So uh, I just thought I'd up my game a little bit. Um, So Aaron said, uh, I'm from New York, and that is true. And uh, I'd apologize for being a Yankees fan, but we've won the World Series 27 times. 
So, <clears throat> I think the Mariners, um, how many times have you guys won that? Yeah, okay. Uh, so, you know, hate all you want. That's cool. Um, but why don't we pray, and then we're going to jump right into uh, the scriptures, John chapter 5. Lord, we just thank you for this time together as we read your word. We pray that you would, uh, we know you're always speaking, but it's us that can't always hear you. So, Lord, we just pray that you would open our ears so that you would hear, uh, so we would hear what you have for us and how you want us to shift maybe what we believe a, a little bit and even the way we live our lives. Lord, we love you. In the name of Yeshua, amen. So I'm a Messianic rabbi, so just to be clear, when I get excited and I start like getting you know, really excited as I preach, I'm going to say Yeshua. That's Jesus. Okay, sometimes when I preach at churches and I say, I, one time I didn't say Jesus at all, I just said Yeshua because that's his Hebrew name, that's what his mother called him, that's what his friends called him in his 33 years of living, he never heard the name Jesus in English because you realize they didn't speak English, right? Uh, he's pretty used to it by now. But, uh, but for the way I grew up and part of my uh, faith is to refer to him as Yeshua, which means salvation, which is cool. You know, in his birth, uh, when the angel appears and says, you will name him Jesus because he will save his people. Well, in Hebrew, that's actually... Yeshua in English literally translates to he saves or salvation. And so when the angel came speaking in Hebrew to Joseph and Miriam, he said to them, you will name him salvation because he will save his people, right? You kind of miss some of it in English. You miss the significance of what they would have understood. So just know I preached a sermon one time and only said Yeshua, and a guy came up to me after and said, it was a really great sermon, but you didn't talk about Jesus at all. And, uh, and I said, did you hear me say Yeshua? He said, oh, yeah, you said that a lot. Same dude, okay? So just, just know that uh, at the beginning. Um, so I want to start, actually, in verse 18 of what we just read in John chapter 5. And in verse 18, this is kind of how this section ends. It says, so for this reason, the Judean leaders, and this is what I'm using as a Messianic Jewish translation called the Tree of Life Bible, and, and partly so you can see some of the differences. In a lot of translations, like in the ESV, which we read, and in others, it just says the Jews. Um, and it makes it sound like all Jewish people. But that's actually not what's in the Greek. The Greek is actually referencing a small group of Jewish leaders. And oftentimes we call them the Pharisees or the Torah scholars. And the Pharisees get a bad rap in the church. They're like the worst people. Um, but the truth is, Pharisee was a political party and it was a religious party. And, and most Pharisees were good, God-honoring people. Um, that's why they did the things that they did. They, they weren't in it for power and for money, but there was probably a small group of leaders. And I think when they come up in the Gospels, uh, my bet is it's the same group of guys that follow Yeshua around, Jesus around for three years, looking to kill him. Which, by the way, is against the Torah. It's against the commandments that come down from Moses. If somebody comes and says, I'm a prophet, there's a commandment for us that Moses gave us both in Deuteronomy 13 and in Deuteronomy 18 that says, if a prophet comes and does miracles in my name, the first thing you're to do is listen to him. Then you're to judge him by what actually comes true or not in what he says. 
But often, like we see right here, for this reason, the Judean leaders just kept trying harder to kill him. A lot of times in the Gospels, they don't even, even when they ask questions, they're not really asking questions. They're looking to entrap him because they want him to say something wrong. They don't realize that they're dealing with the visible image of the invisible God. And when they try to entrap him, he usually entraps them into uh, nobody ever left a conversation with Jesus and these Jewish leaders and thought, you know, that guy Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. It's just not how it played out. But they kept trying and they kept doing it. And, it, and, and here it says, uh, so for this reason, the Judean leaders kept trying even harder to kill him because not only was he breaking Shabbat or the Sabbath, but also calling God his own father and making himself equal with God. Now, a lot of people read this verse because not only was he breaking Shabbat or the Sabbath and, and have taught and believed. When I went to a Christian college in, called Nyack College in New York, and one of my professors came into class one day and said, Jesus broke the Sabbath, and he did a whole lesson on it. And I'm not just, I'm a Messianic rabbi, but my dad is also a Messianic rabbi. My uncle's a Messianic rabbi in New Jersey. My dad's a Messianic rabbi in New York. And my brother's a Messianic rabbi in Chicago. So this is like the family business. We've been doing this a long time. And as he taught on this, I'm, you know, I'm hyperactive and I can't sit still anyway. But when somebody's saying Jesus broke the Sabbath, I'm like freaking out in my seat. And I raised my hand and I said, not possible. That's not possible. You can't build your theology around Jesus breaking commandments. Because if he's sinless, which we believe he is according to his story in the New Testament, then that means he didn't break commandments from God. What he did often was he broke extra stuff that other people added to the commandments. And these guys didn't like some of the things that he was doing, but you better believe that when it says here in verse 18 that he was not only breaking Shabbat, that that's from the perspective of these Jewish leaders. John is not saying Jesus broke the Sabbath. Because if Jesus broke the Sabbath, according to the scriptures and the Torah, it tells us as Jews to not do our regular work on the Sabbath. And part of that means, you know, you have to ask the question. It's a legitimate question. Well, what is regular work? And how does that play out? And so the rabbis got together and, and had uh, just like church councils. There are rabbinic councils and they would get together and they would decide, well, let's define what regular work is so it's easier for everyone to observe the Sabbath. And so they accused Jesus of breaking the Sabbath, but Jesus actually never breaks the Sabbath according to the scriptures. This happened several places in the Gospels. One time Yeshua was walking through a field and he's picking grain and he's eating the grain, him and his disciples as they're walking and probably the same group of guys comes and says, you can't do that on the Sabbath because picking grain is a form of work, right? You're doing, and basically Jesus' response is, we're eating, it's fine, we'll be all right. <laughs> and there's a few other places where their reasoning behind what they're doing actually has nothing to do with the commandments themselves but more to do with the authority with which Jesus spoke. You realize, and I, this, is a, this is a big statement, and I'm going to make it because I'm short and I have to make big statements to compensate. <laughs> Jesus never said anything new. There was nothing in the Gospels that wasn't already said by somebody else in the first century. In fact, most of the arguments that Jesus makes and has are all arguments that other rabbis had already been arguing in the first century. Because that's what, we, that's what Jews do. We argue. 
I'm both Jewish, my dad's Jewish, and my mom's Italian, which makes you very hyper, hairy, and loud. Those are the, it's a combination of Jewish and Italian, makes you hyperactive. And um, Aaron said the sound system wasn't working right before we came in, in which I don't really need a sound system to uh, preach the gospel. It doesn't, God is compensated in my short stature by giving me a very loud voice. So in a room full of tall people, which is every room I'm ever in, um, I I can certainly make myself known because I am the loudest person uh, in the room. So there's a Jewish feast, and they go up to Jerusalem, and they come now to verse 2, and they're in Jerusalem, and there's this pool by the sheep gate called Bethesda in Aramaic, which has five porches. Now, this is such an interesting um, thing because the pool of Bethesda, I actually show you some pictures. We had, uh, we had an opportunity, my family had an opportunity. I, I just came back from a three-month sabbatical. I've been with my congregation for seven years, and I took a three-month sabbatical in the seventh year because it's a Sabbath for me. And part of what we were able to do, which is amazing on the part of our community and other organizations that chipped in, was they gave us uh, five weeks as a family in Jerusalem. And we had an incredible time. My daughter Emma's here with me, and we had an incredible time just kind of living in the city for uh, five weeks and going to all these different sites. And one of the places we went to was the pool of Bethesda. And what's amazing about Jerusalem, you can keep going through all of them. What's amazing about Jerusalem, this is a good picture actually to show it, is that um, Jerusalem has been conquered 44 times, attacked 44 times, and rebuilt 14 times um, in the last 2,000 years. So way down at the bottom there is actually ground level in the first century. And all of these other levels are uh, 14 other times that it was built up to where you walk on the street level now in Jerusalem, which was not the street level for them, but was built up on. And here's my Yankee hat, because that's important to throw in (laughs) for you guys. So that's from the top, looking all the way down. And down in there is where the man who was laying for 38 years would have been laying by the pool. Now, we didn't discover, this pool wasn't discovered in Jerusalem until the early 1900s. And so if you go further back into some commentaries on this chapter, there's whole arguments that commentators make where it says John obviously made this portion up because in the first century in Israel, there's no such thing as a pool with five porches. And so clearly John must have made it up And it's part of the people who try to pick away at the authenticity of the scripture and the reality of what these guys are actually writing from until they actually discovered the pool and found that there were five sides and it was a five-sided pool. And then it comes back and people are like, oh, well, I just, yeah, that's fine. Um, (laughs) Just have to shift our argument a little to try to disprove the Bible somewhere else. Uh, but every time, you know, what's incredible about Israel is a lot of Israel has not been excavated at all. The largest, after the state of Israel, the largest owner of property in the land of Israel is the Greek Orthodox Church. They own a ton of land and property, and the Roman Catholic Church does, and the Coptic Church does, and all these different churches own all these property. And because of politics and all different kinds of reasons, um, a lot of areas have never been excavated at all because the different owners of the land don't want Israel to excavate. But when they do, they find stuff like this. 
And they find it and say, and this was one of my goals with my kids is in being in Jerusalem, is I said to them, I want you to understand that the Bible's not a myth. That when people, particularly in our culture here in Seattle, try to argue whether the Bible even happened at all, there are some places where they're not sure where things happen. A lot because they haven't been excavated. And there's some places where there are like three or four different sites where it may be. But the majority of sites in the nation of Israel are 100% exactly where the stories happen. No question. Aside from the scriptures, like no question historically. Like when you go to the pools of Bethesda, that's it. When you go to En Gedi, which is the spot in the wilderness where King David hid from Saul and cut off his cape and hid in the caves, and you go down to the Dead Sea, and you go up to Capernaum and into the Galilee, and you see all these different places where Peter's house is still there in Capernaum. You can go, in fact, they built a church on top of it with a glass floor so you could look down and see his house, which is kind of weird, but the house is still there. And it's just an incredible experience. If you've never been, I, I, I encourage you to find a way to go. And there are plenty of opportunities to do that. So in verse 4, well, verse 4 is not there. I don't know if it says in most Bibles, it just skips verse 4 in the text. And that's because the uh, King James and the ASV have a verse in there about the angel stirring the water, which is not in most of the original manuscripts. And so it's, if you have a King James Bible, you're probably not in the right church. And uh, if you have that verse, most other Bibles don't have that verse because most scholars believe that that verse isn't accurate to the original text. So we skip verse 4 and go to verse 5. It says, Now a certain man had been an invalid there for 38 years, and seeing him lying there, and knowing he had been that way a long time, Yeshua said to him, do you want to get well? And the invalid answered, sir, I have nobody to put me in the pool when the water is stirred. And while I'm trying to get in, somebody else steps down before me. So Yeshua says, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And immediately the man was healed and he took up his mat and started walking around. Now that day was Shabbat, the Sabbath. And the Judean leaders were saying to the man who was healed, it's Shabbat. It's not permitted for you to carry your mat. So let's just pause there for a second. One, Yeshua asked the man, do you want to get healed? To which he does not answer yes or no, which would be a, one of those would be appropriate. I don't want to be healed or I do want to be healed. Instead, he does what most people do and he's asked a direct question and he gives an excuse. Well, I've been laying here for 38 years, but nobody puts me in the water. And the legend was uh, which verse four, verse 4 reflects, is that an angel would come down and stir the water, and the first person to get in the water would be healed. And so he's like, I just, I, I can't move my legs. I can't get in first. So Yeshua just says, get up and walk, which he does immediately. And he passes these Jewish leaders, and as he passes these Jewish leaders, they go, uh, bro, you can't carry that. You can't carry the mat you were laying on for 38 years. What? Really? I mean, think about this just, just on a practical, like, human level. They know who this guy is. This is not somebody who's unheard of in this area. He's been laying by the pool for 38 years. That's a long time. And he hasn't moved himself. In fact, he was probably carried to the pool by someone else and carried home at the end of the day. They knew who he was. 
How is it that when he walks past these Jewish leaders that they don't say, oh my gosh, you're walking, this is amazing, Baruch Hashem. Praise the Lord. Their response is, you can't carry your mat on Shabbat. And it's super easy for us to look back at it. And as a Messianic rabbi, I have conversations with people all the time where people assume that Judaism is legalistic. That's just the assumption that most Christians put onto Judaism. And they use things like this to point out, see, legalistic. And it is. I mean, they're being legalistic. Let me just clarify what legalism is. Legalism is enforcing people to keep rules that you've set for yourself. You cannot be legalistic about the things that God has commanded. If God says do not work and we figure out how to not work on a day, there's no legalism in that because we're honoring a commandment from God. The carrying your mat part is added later by other people and they're enforcing it as if by carrying something you're sinning. That is the definition of legalism by raising man-made laws above God's laws. And we all do that all the time. In fact, the bottom line of this message is this. Religious people say, change and you can join us. Jesus says, join us and you will change. You see the difference? Religious people, and it's funny, in Judaism, being religious is a positive thing. Right? When people talk to, oh, well, I'm not religious, or yes, I'm very religious, that's part of our conversation. In Christianity, religious is an t- entirely negative thing. Like, oh, no, I'm not religious, this, it's, it's a part difference in how we talk. We say that we're religious as a positive thing. Often Christians say they are religious as a negative thing. But in this case, religion is when we set our own laws above God's and try to enforce them. And worse, when people walk in the door that don't fit what we think following Jesus should look like, we often condemn them and turn them away before they even have an opportunity to hear about the gospel of grace that's available to us in the death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus. And it happens all the time. Whether you like it or not, we are religious people. And somehow along the line, many of us are prodigals who ran away from God for a season and then turned back. And maybe that was 20, 30 years ago, and you forgot what it's like to be a prodigal. And now you're the older brother standing there condemning all the prodigals who are walking in the door. And you don't believe you are. None of us do, right? This isn't like a raise your hand if you're religious. Yay! (laughs) Right? Like people aren't excited about it. And if you're convinced that you're not, you probably are. The best way to find out is to ask your spouse. They'll tell you. Ask your children. Ask the people around you. Like, how much of a struggle is this for me for real? Francis Schaeffer once said that biblical orthodoxy without compassion is surely the ugliest thing in the world. And it is. It's great to have good theology. You should have good theology, and you should know your Bible, not just the New Testament, the whole Bible. We should know the scriptures. We have to read them constantly to know them for ourselves. You can't depend on preachers to tell you what the word says. When somebody, when a preacher like me shows up and preaches something, it, if you really want to know if what I'm saying is true, then dig into it yourself. Challenge it. It's okay. God's not afraid of your challenges. He's not like, well, I mean, I worked all this out, but now I did not anticipate that question. <laughs> like, he's, he's prepared for it. But oftentimes, religious people are saying, you know, we want people to change first, then they can come. 
When in reality, following Jesus means we want people to join us as they are. You know the phrase, come as you are. The, the dilemma with the phrase, come as you are, is it's used by a lot of churches these days on big signs with rainbows on them to say, come as you are and stay that way. But that's not the gospel. The gospel is come as you are. God's not intimidated and the people of God are not intimidated by what you do or don't do. But you better recognize that when you come as you are, God's going to change something in you, in every single one of us. And the change isn't once. It's not at the moment of salvation. Like now that you're saved, all the changes have been made and you continue on in, in joy for the rest of your life. No, there's things that God wants to change in every single one of our lives throughout the course of our life as we follow Jesus. We find things that we have to change because we have to deal with ourselves as wanting to be in the image of the, gods, uh, of the God that we are made in and finding that we fail often in being in that image. And so Yeshua offers himself as a sacrifice so we don't have to depend on ourselves but depend on the sacrifice that he made for us and ask for forgiveness for when we do the wrong thing or sin against him or against people and then do better. That's the goal. And that never changes. God's given us an opportunity to stop condemning people for what we think they should be doing with their lives and love them right where they are. And this is what's so amazing about this story to me is, is when Jesus says to him, says to the man laying there, do you want to get well? I mean, don't you think his answer would be yes? He's been laying there for 38 years. Like, don't you think his first response would be yes? But then you have to sit back and go, oh, wait, he was stuck for a long time. He couldn't even see that he didn't really want to be healed. Maybe it was just easier at this point in his life to lay there by the pool. He had a system worked out, right? People carried him in. He laid there. People carried him home. That was the system. That was his routine. That's what he was used to doing for 38 years. And at some point, it just became easier. And maybe they had talked about healing, and certainly he had seen other people healed, but I think he lost hope a long time ago. So when the visible image of the invisible God comes up to him and says, do you want to be healed? He goes, well, I mean, I, there's nobody to put me in the pool, so that was my only hope. My only hope was sitting here by this pool, and that hasn't worked for 38 years. So, I mean, you tell me. I don't know if I want to be healed or not. So Yeshua just says, get up and walk. I mean, just think about it. Just get inside this guy's head for a second. His legs somehow become strong enough. It says immediately his legs became strong enough. I don't know if you've ever hung out with people that have similar things like this. And often when your legs do not work, they certainly the muscles can't do what they're supposed to do. And they're often very thin and have no muscles to them because they haven't used their muscles and they're not actually moving their legs. So their muscles are deformed. But somehow, immediately, he can stand up and walk after 38 years. And he picks up his mat, and it's the day of the Sabbath at Shabbat, and he walks by these men, and they say, who told you to pick up his mat? And I love, this is one of my favorite things. It happens several times in the Gospels. It says in verse 13, but the man who had been healed didn't know who it was, for Yeshua had slipped away. 
um, into the crowd in that place. And this is like, I feel like Yeshua did some Jedi mind tricks on people. Where like, you know, they try to, he preaches in his synagogue and they try to throw him off a cliff. And uh, off the cliff he goes, he just says, he just walks away. Like they're going to throw him off a cliff. They're going to kill him and throw him off the cliff. And the scripture says, he just left. <laughs> like, the reason why they were on the cliff was to throw him off of it. So somehow it had to be that Yeshua just waved his hand and said, you will let me pass. And he, he, these are not the droids you're looking for. And he walked right through. And this is a similar case where he just healed the guy who had been laying there for 38 years. And in laying there for 38 years, he's now walking. But somehow nobody noticed that the guy who healed him just walked away. Like, like who, who healed you? Who healed you? I don't know. I, I, don't, I mean, you understand in the excitement of it all. Who healed you? I mean, he could walk, right? So he's not like thinking, oh, thanks. That was great. Thanks for healing me. Like he's like, oh, my gosh, I can walk. And he's walking around going, hey, guys, nice to see you. Good to see you. Yeah, nice. I was laying there 38 years. Now I'm good. Thank you. Thank you. know. So he doesn't know who healed him. And, of course, these guys see him and say, well, you can't carry your mat because it's the Sabbath. You know, there's two things in Jewish law that deal with in two parts of kind of what you do on the Sabbath, and then the question of whether one can heal on the Sabbath and whether one can carry things on the Sabbath and what that actually looks like. And healing on the Sabbath is a funny thing because in Judaism, we don't really do... Orthodox Judaism doesn't just pray for people the way you are used to and I are used to praying for people. There are prayers that you pray that were already written, and you pray them for certain things, but they don't just pray for people like lay their hands on someone and pray for people. So one rabbi just said, I mean, somebody asked on a, on a Ask the Rabbi website, uh, as far about being healed, is healing on the Sabbath okay? And this sounds very passive-aggressive to me. Maybe he's from Seattle. As uh, he says, as far as Shabbat is concerned, um, since there's no physical action taking place, it would not be considered forbidden on Shabbat as other forms of medicine on Shabbat are. So he's like, I don't know if you're going to, I mean, if you pray for somebody and they stand up, I guess you didn't do anything wrong. Like, that's part of their question. One article said this, and this is super funny to me. This is a Jewish author on a Jewish website. Said it seemed that the gospel writers wanted to show Jesus as a halachist, which is somebody who argues the Torah, who debated on equal terms with the Pharisees, the most respected of the Jewish sages of the time. Many of the words of Jesus on the subject of healing are in fact derived from arguments used by Rabbi Eliezer ben Hazaria, Rabbi Akiva, and especially Rabbi Ishmael, who was the first to be associated with the phrase in Hebrew, pechuach nefesh, which is saving a life, a phrase which he apparently invented for any action that saved the life on, of anyone at the expense of another Jewish law. <laughs> here's, here's what's funny about this quote. All three of those rabbis come after Jesus. Like, Jesus is, dies in 33, 30, you know, somewhere in that, wherever you're at on his actual dates. He's definitely not alive by 40. And one of these rabbis is born in 50. Another one is born in 90, right? Like, they're not. And she's like, well, he obviously took his arguments from these rabbis who came after him. 
Now, again, Jesus never said anything new, so I think these arguments existed before these guys wrote them down. Typically, when something is written down, it's written down because we've argued about it for a long time. And then you write down, this rabbi believed this, and this rabbi believed that, and, that's, and then you choose a side based on which rabbi you follow. Um, but one of the things about, there's actually in Orthodox communities, and we passed them while we were living in Jerusalem for five weeks, that the ultra-Orthodox communities, the most religious on Shabbat, they will put a barrier around their entire neighborhood, like a physical barrier, and it's called an aruv. And aruv is, on Shabbat, you can carry things within that area, but you can't carry things outside of that area. And this is part of how they've worked out. In Judaism, it's called building fences around the law. And building fences around the law simply means there's an actual law, and the actual law is from God. Then we put up a fence because we say to ourselves, look, if it says do not work, well, we got to define what work is on Shabbat. So the fence is this is what's work and this is what's not work just so that we don't ever break the Sabbath by accident. Then they put up another fence, which is, well, we don't want to by accident work, so we're not going to carry anything. So that's another fence. So just in case we don't carry anything so that we break the commandment, so that we break the actual commandment, we're going to keep putting these fences up to get us to a point where they actually put an entire barrier around an entire neighborhood so you can carry things within that neighborhood, which none of that discussion is found in anywhere in the scriptures. Right? And in Judaism, it's called uh, building fences around the law. Well, in Christianity, it's called the slippery slope. You guys familiar with this term? Somebody does something, and it's not necessarily against the scriptures, but like it, it's almost against something. And you're like, well, if you do that, then you're on a slippery slope. I went to a Christian college, right? And then we had to sign a document when we got there as freshmen that said we wouldn't have premarital sex because premarital sex led to dancing. Just kidding. It was the other way around. <laughs> we weren't allowed to dance because dancing led to sex, right? And you have to, this is the slippery slope. Well, everybody knows if you start dancing, obviously, the next thing that's going to happen is you take all your clothes off. That's how it works, right? And this is where we build these constructs in our mind in, in, to protect ourselves or to protect our children. And, and really what I've, what I've found... and. Building fences around the law and the slippery slope aren't even bad on their own. These aren't like bad things. But they become bad when we become religious and we attach ourselves to these things that we've made up or somebody made up for us. And then we start treating everybody like this is how you have to follow Jesus. This is what it looks like. I mean, you could take an example of this church, like you guys meet in a high school auditorium, and at some point, because you meet here out of necessity and it's expensive to buy a building, and you try to buy a building, but you're meeting here because the rent is cheaper and all that works out. But, you know, say you're still here 50 years from now and nobody really understands that. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. You're going to get a building. Don't worry. But somebody could come along and say, you know, all churches are supposed to meet in high school auditoriums. Because that's been our experience. That's what I've done for most of my life. I've met in a church that was in a high school auditorium, right? This is what we say to ourselves. And so then at some point it becomes, well, that's what everybody should do. And we do this all the time with all different kinds of things, with what kind of music we listen to and the way that we dress and the way that we talk. And, you know, if somebody says a curse word, well, they probably don't love Jesus. And if, you know, we get, our, we get ourselves all worked up about these things that we think people ought to do, 
And then we start to judge people by them, and we become very much like this small group of Pharisees that followed Yeshua around who entirely miss the miracle that happened in front of them because they're worried about the rules that they've set up for themselves and for everybody else. And it's super easy to look back and say, I'm not like that, but the problem is we are all like that. And we need the Holy Spirit in our lives to help us not be like that anymore. Because religious people say, change and you can join us. But Jesus says, join us and you will change. And and I love that um, when Yeshua goes and finds the man afterwards in the temple, which you got to pause at verse 14 for a second and realize, why is the man who was just healed in the temple? And the answer would be, Because after you get healed, you go to the temple to make a sacrifice. In fact, there are several times where Yeshua heals people and instructs them to go to the temple as part of praising and honoring God. So it's not uncommon that someone who is healed and has had an issue like he's had for 38 years now goes to the temple in which Yeshua finds him at the temple in Jerusalem, which is actually not that far from the pools of Bethesda, it's a pretty short walk. And in fact, it's a very similar to walk to where Jesus actually carried his cross because he carries his cross starting right by the pools of Bethesda and goes down what's now called the Via Della Rosa because Jesus was Italian. And um, (laughs) my my grandmother was Italian and she said to me one time, this has nothing to do with the message. She said, uh, you know who the greatest two... Italians ever in the history of the world are? I said, who, Grandma? She said, Frank Sinatra and Jesus. <laughs> and I said, Grandma, nobody questions the Italianness of Frank Sinatra, but Jesus was not Italian. She went, what? <laughs> he never even went to Rome. That's not, he never left Israel. He was always in Israel. Okay, back to, back to the scriptures. So Yeshua sees the man and he says, look, you've been healed. Stop sinning so nothing worse happens to you. Now, people have done all kinds of weird things with this, and some people think it it makes it sound like that Jesus was saying that he was probably there for 38 years because of some some sin in his life. I, I don't think that's true. I think what's happening here is the first thing you do when something changes, or I would imagine you've been healed, and just speaking as a man, he's been lame and not moving for 38 years. He might just want to go and sin immediately. Because often when good things happen, even when we pray prayers and God answers those prayers, sometimes we go off to do things we ought not to do. It's human nature. It's a part of who we are. And Yeshua is saying to him in the temple courts, look, you've been healed. So rejoice and celebrate, but now stop sinning so that things don't get worse for you. And this is supposed to be part of our goal as followers of Jesus is to sin less. Jesus was sinless. We're supposed to sin less. It's not that sin stops because we're sinners and we will be sinners until the day Yeshua comes back and takes us into his kingdom. But in the meantime, he wants us to sin less, to be aware of the sins that we wrestle with. And some of them are easy, right? We can look at people and and know that maybe there's a sin in their life. Like I obviously like Oreo cookies. That's very obvious when you look at me. Right? Nobody looks at me and says, you're in such great shape. That's not what people say to me, because I'm not. It's evident. It's obvious. 
But there's a whole lot of other things in people's lives that are not obvious at all. And they're all the ones that God actually cares about, which are pride and jealousy and envy and strife and division and all the things that are listed. And those are the things that are more internal than they are external. And often they're hard to even call out. But Yeshua is saying to him, as he's saying to us today, just stop sinning because if you continue to sin, things will get worse for you. It doesn't mean that you become a religious person who acts like they never sin. That's not the point. The point of the whole story is we are sinners, we continue to be sinners, and in our sin, Jesus still comes to us and invites us to be a part of his family and then encourages us to invite other people to join the family as well in their sin, as they are. But sometimes we're so blinded by our own religiosity and we, we sometimes the things that are most religious about us make us feel secure and they make us feel special and they give us a false sense of holiness, but actually they are killing us on the inside because they're keeping us from hearing God clearly and walking with him with all of our heart, with all of our soul and all of our strength because we can't get past our own things that God has enabled us through his Holy Spirit to actually stop doing. But our religiosity keeps us doing those very same things. Because we hold them. I was meeting with somebody this week who told me about a covenant that he made when his mother was on her deathbed. And I said to him, did God tell you to make that covenant to her? Or did you just make it yourself? What happens if you were to break that covenant? What would happen for you? And he'd say, I'd feel shame and guilt. I said, well, then it probably wasn't God. Because God doesn't give us things to make us feel guilty or to cause shame. Maybe by holding yourself to this covenant that you made, you're actually keeping yourself from growing in your relationship with Jesus because you're stuck in a place where you've decided, I will not do this thing. All along, God was saying, I never said that. I never said that to you. I never commanded that for you. So we get ourselves wrapped up and we get ourselves stuck. And when we are stuck, that's when we become the most judgmental of all the other people around us. Because we don't like that we're stuck. And the way that we deal with it is we point out where everybody else is stuck. Because it's easier to point to you and to you and to you than it is to deal with myself internally. And allow God to actually change my heart and my mind and the way that I love people. Listen, I, I, theology is important. Context is important. Knowing that Jesus actually didn't break the Sabbath is a very crucial theological concept because it's what makes him sinless and it's what gives him the ability to be a kosher sacrifice, to offer himself as our Passover lamb because he was without blemish and without sin. If he sinned in this instance, then he can't be who he says he is. So knowing the truth is important. But often when we get so, we have sold ourselves on what is true or not true, we actually are putting ourselves in a prison of keeping ourselves right where we are and not actually growing in the knowledge of our relationship with Jesus. So I want to encourage you this morning, stop sinning. At the, very be- at the very least, just sin less. Because the more we have a relationship with Jesus and the more we understand his scriptures and the things that he's called us to, the the more we should be compassionate to the people around us who are struggling as sinners just like we do. 
and even more so to the people who are outside of these doors, our friends and our neighbors and the people we go to school with and the people we work with and the people that we just know, if they had Jesus, man, if they could just understand how much he loved them, how much would change in their lives. And I'm telling you that part of the way to get those people there is to accept that for yourself. It's not just about the moment of salvation. It's about the things that Jesus wants to change in your heart and in your mind. And as you are willing to change that, even publicly, as you're willing to change some things and people notice the changes that are happening that probably couldn't have happened on your own, then they start asking questions. How, how did you change it? What did you do? What was different? And the answer is not good theology. The answer is I had an encounter with the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God who set Israel free with an outstretched arm from the land of Egypt, the God who in that same holiday of Passover died, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven 40 days later, and sent his Holy Spirit on the day of Shavuot, a Jewish holiday, to empower those Jewish people to preach the gospel. It's where Peter stands up and 3,000 Jewish people are saved in that moment. And then the scripture says, thousands were added daily. And friends, we have a small congregation. You guys are not a gigantic congregation either, but I believe there's a day coming where thousands are added daily to every congregation that understands that it's more about, it's, it's more about the compassion that Jesus wants us to operate in. It's not that we should have bad theology. We want good theology. But the theology is supposed to make us more compassionate to the people that need Jesus. Let me pray for you. Lord God, we thank you for who you are and who you've called us to be as your people. I pray for my brothers and sisters here, for myself and my own family, Lord, that you would help us to sin less. That you would help us to see the things in our lives that you want us to change today the things that you want to see shift in our lives so that we could be better followers of Jesus. Lord, that as that happens for each one of us, that we would encourage the people around us to know Jesus in that same way. Lord, we're so grateful for the healings that you want to do in this day and age that we're alive. Not just physically, but emotionally and mentally and in every way, Lord, you want to heal us. And I pray that you would help us to be people that are open to your healing so that when you heal, we can pull other people into the things that you're doing for them as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Friends, can we say thank you to Matt for teaching us this morning? Appreciate you. So encouraging for my heart and instructive as well, and so appreciate you very much being here. Friends, I want to invite us into a time of response. We're going to respond to Jesus, uh, just as the man responded by running to the temple to offer worship to God, we're going to respond by offering worship to God. The first way we're going to do that is by the giving of our tithes and offerings. Let me say a few things on that. If you're a guest or a visitor, there's no obligation to give. We don't want you to feel pressured in any way. Uh, but for all of us, we want to invite you to give of your finances as one of the ways that we worship Jesus. Uh, it says that in Second Corinthians that each is to give what they've decided in their heart, not reluctantly or under 
compulsion because God loves a cheerful giver. And so we want to worship and, and give with joy uh, to support the work of the ministry here at Sound City and, and others and uh, that we partner with. And as they're collecting the offering, let me read a few discussion questions for us, uh, things that will help us this week in our homes, our community groups, uh, to help us to really respond to this message. So how would you answer the question if Jesus looked at you and said, do you really want to be well? Uh, if you were honest, how would you answer that question? Uh, number two, how does your uh, being a good person potentially even inhibit you in relationship with God? And, and how is he calling you to repent not just of sin but of, of pride as well? Uh, number three, uh, Jesus never broke God's law. Can we get a big amen from that? I love that. That was good. Uh, how is this incredible truth the only source of our hope, uh, that Jesus was sinless and perfect, our source of salvation? And how does this gospel of Jesus uh, free us from that trap of, of moralism and legalism and dead religion? And a couple things to pray about because we want to be a praying people as well. So, so first of all, just praise and thank God uh, that he saves us, not just from our rebellion, but from our self-righteousness and religion. And, and then also pray that God would give us opportunities to show this love and this salvation and not just how to be a good person. Amen? They're going to hand out the elements for communion. We're going to celebrate together. This is uh, an open table. If you are uh, someone, if you're a guest or visitor, but if you call on the name of Jesus and you worship him, this is uh, for you to join us. This is what the Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians about this meal that we're going to celebrate. It says this, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke the bread, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. We heard that multiple times today from Rabbi Matt, that Jesus died in our place. His body was broken so that he could be the sacrifice for our sins. He says, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is, this is our only hope. This is our only arrangement, our only agreement between God and man is the blood of Jesus Christ. He says, uh, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And then, friends, there's an invitation to reflect and to examine. He says this, as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. And that sounds big, that sounds intimidating, and it, it ought to. It ought to uh, cause us to pause with sober reflection. An unworthy manner doesn't mean that we have to be perfect to eat of this. It means we have to acknowledge that we're not perfect and we're in need of God's grace. Amen? So let a person examine himself then and eat of the bread and drink of the cup. We're going to uh, just pray, and then I will play quietly, instrumentally for a moment to allow you, when you're ready, to eat of the bread and to drink of the cup. And in a moment, we'll invite you to stand and sing with us. God, we thank you for the mercy that we've been shown in Jesus Christ. Thank you for this story where we see the mercy of Jesus on display, uh, the mercy to the, to the invalid, to the man who'd not been able to walk for 38 years. God, the mercy to these Jewish leaders who were stuck in their uh, religion. God, even the, the, the mercy of Jesus to warn the man to, to stop sinning. We thank you for your mercy. We pray now we would respond to that mercy with love and thanksgiving and true worship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.